the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Your confession of faith. How important is it? Join us and find out next on Abounding Grace. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Welcome to the program. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today, as well as Matthew chapter 16. We've got a couple of verses we're looking at as we understand the importance of our confession of faith. Please, make it a point to join us as we spend time in God's Word, growing in His grace. Here with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace is Pastor Gary Wagner. This incident in the life of Christ, of Peter's confession of faith and Jesus' response to it, is so important in the life of Christ and its implications for us 2,000 years later that we're going to spend today and probably next Sunday on the subject. It was a pivotal time in the life of Christ. After Peter gave his testimony, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus began to explain things to the apostles more clearly than he had ever done before. Prior to Peter's confession, Jesus was traveling from place to place preaching. He still preaches, but afterwards his focus becomes getting to Jerusalem and dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Now last week we looked at that great phrase of Jesus in response to Peter's testimony, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And remember what we learned last week. We learned that Jesus was not referring to Peter as a person, as the rock upon which he would build his church. He was referring, first of all, to the apostles as the foundation of the Christian church. Those whose spirits inspired confession of faith and writing and preaching are the foundation the church is built upon, their confession of faith. We saw also secondarily that he meant by that those who confess Jesus as their Messiah and Lord and Savior down through history, that God will use the confession of faith of people like you and I when it is based upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ as the chief cornerstone to triumph over evil in this world. Now today, first of all, I want us to talk a little more about the confession of faith that's mentioned here on our text, which Jesus said he is going to use to build his church upon this earth. And as we look at Peter's confession of faith, I ask you to please consider your own and make sure your confession has the following marks. First, It is a public declaration. 
as Rebecca Loomis will do in just a few minutes. A confession of faith is not something that you keep to yourself. It's not something that you relegate to your private life. It's something that you should want the world to to know. It is something you're not afraid to declare publicly before other people, whether they are Christians or non-Christians. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is a confession that is an intelligent profession, a profound statement that's based on solid reflection of Christ and His works. Now, Peter didn't understand all the ramifications of what he said. But he had been reflecting over the previous years as he listened to Jesus teach. And after reflecting upon it, he very intelligently and profoundly said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as we have seen and will see again, there is a world of theology in that one statement. Our confession of faith is not based upon ignorance. It's not about telling the world how we feel about certain things. It is an intelligent profession of faith that shows deep reflection on what God has revealed to us in His Word. A confession of faith is a courageous proclamation. Peter's confession was courageous in light of the historical context in which it was made. He was literally taking sides. It was a declaration of war against evil and its host. He is saying, I know this war, and I know which side I'm on. And I publicly declare, I am taking sides with the Lord Jesus Christ against all evil. And the confession of faith is a declaration of personal attachment to, you, to Jesus. It's a union between you and Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the focus of our faith, beloved. We are declaring publicly, I am personally attached to the person of Jesus. My confession of faith does have ideas, and it does include words, but it is not simply comprised of ideas and words. Those ideas and words reflect my own personal attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And a confession of faith also involves a personal commitment to follow Jesus' word wherever it leads. I confess you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Tell me what to do, and I will do it. I will follow you wherever you would have me go. A confession of faith without these characteristics, beloved, is counterfeit, and it amounts to nothing, no matter how eloquently spoken. A confession without these characteristics says about the one making the confession either that he or she is ignorant of what the confession requires of them or is a hypocrite trying to impress us and God with their eloquent confession. So what is the content of a confession of faith? What is it we are to confess to the world? In Luke 9.20 
In his typical abbreviated fashion, Luke quotes Peter as saying, Thou art the Christ of or from the living God. Now, though that is a short testimony, it presupposes a whole system of doctrine. In fact, the whole system of doctrine can be drawn from those two little statements that were read earlier. Thou art the Christ of God, and thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. They presuppose and they imply all kinds of doctrines. For instance, the Trinity. You have both the first and the second person of the Trinity mentioned in this one phrase, and we see that there is a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. Whatever you do, do not let the brevity of these two statements fool you. They require tremendous reflection. It is a confession that Jesus Christ is the Christ. And what does the word Christ mean? It is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. It means the anointed one. So Peter is confessing, I believe Jesus is sent from God to be the Savior of his people. I believe that God anointed Jesus to be the mediator of the new covenant, the, the go-between between God and ourselves, so that all the blessings and promises of God's covenant might be bestowed on our lives. And in order to do that, I believe that this anointed one, just like the anointed prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament, is the prophet that will scatter my darkness and help me to see God and what his will is for my life. And I believe that he's my priest who laid down his life in my place as a sacrifice for my sins. And I believe also he is my king who came into this world to control the otherwise uncontrollable passions of my heart. That's what we're saying when we say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus is not simply the most extraordinary man that ever lived, my friends. He is one of a kind. He is the one and only God-man that has ever lived. Fully God and fully man in one person. He is from all eternity God the Son. And he became incarnate through the virgin's womb. Jesus did not become God's Son when he was born. Jesus, insofar as he was God the Son, had a relationship of a son with God the Father from all eternity, even before he became incarnate in the world. And our confession of faith is that Jesus Christ is God the Son in our humanness. The Messiah, our prophet, priest, and king, but he is also the suffering servant of God who came to suffer in our place. He is a triumphant sovereign, arising from the dead and reigning over all things on our behalf. That is what Jesus explained plainly to the apostles in shocking terms to them in Luke 9, 21 and 22, when he told them and warned them, do not tell anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up 
<clears throat> excuse me, on the third day. Now, the reason Jesus explained this right after Peter's testimony was to try and teach the apostles the true meaning of what Peter had just confessed because they were confused still about many things, at least before the resurrection of Christ. Because they were infected by some of the misconceptions of the Jewish people that the Messiah would be a political revolutionary who would raise a great army to throw off the Roman tyranny. So what Jesus said to them was shocking. It was confusing. It was unbelievable to them. How could the Messiah suffer? How in the world could the king of the Jews, who came to liberate the Jews, be rejected by the rulers of the Jews who had been waiting for his appearance and be killed by them and the Gentiles? And it was because of this fact that Jesus told them not to tell anyone this, at least not yet. Things are volatile at this point, so so don't tell anyone. It'll just confuse them. It'll it'll throw them into an uproar. The timing's just not right yet. And furthermore, beloved apostles, you are still confused on this point. So don't tell anyone yet. Now let's look at what Jesus said about himself in verses 21 and 22. He refers to himself here as the Son of Man. Now, believe it or not, this is one of the most exalted titles that Jesus is given anywhere in Scripture. The phrase, the Son of Man, does not simply mean he is the Son of Man as over against the Son of God, that he is simply human. The Son of Man means far more than that. This was Jesus favorite designation for himself. He called himself the Son of Man more times than he called himself anything else, and he got it from Daniel 7. If you will, please turn with me there, and you'll see why this was his favorite title. It says a great deal about him, and it'll help us understand the content of our confession of faith in Christ. In Daniel 7, Verses 13 and 14, it says, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. Now, I think some of your translations have one like a Son of Man. But the A should not be there, beloved, because this is a proper name. So it can either say one like the Son of Man or the Son of Man himself was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now here's a picture of what Jesus receives as a result of his resurrection and his ascension to God. And please see that he's not coming, that, that he's not coming down to earth. It has nothing to do with his second coming as the dispensationalist would have you believe. But he is ascending into the very presence of God after being crucified. And it says, now notice what this great Son of Man receives. Verse 14. And to Him is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So do you begin to see why Jesus liked this title so much, the Son of Man? This glorious figure goes to God's right hand, and He is given a universal cosmic kingdom that is greater than any other kingdom on the face of this earth. It encompasses everything. It's eternal and it overcomes all opposition. And no one will ever be able to upset it or overtake it. So whenever you hear the phrase, the Son of Man, think first of all sovereign. And then think King. For He is a sovereign, triumphant King. But what is interesting is that Jesus gives this phrase just a a little twist when he uses it and blends it in with another passage of Scripture. Because when he refers to himself as the Son of Man, this glorious figure who ascends to God and is given this universal kingdom over all things, our text says, he suffers. He is a sovereign who suffers. So you see these two words, sovereign and suffering, that must go together when you hear the phrase, the Son of Man. Here you see a blending of two of the greatest passages of the Old Testament. Daniel 7, that speaks of a sovereign king, and Isaiah 52 and 53, that has the theme of a suffering servant who comes to save his people from their sin. So let's look at Isaiah 52, verse 13, and we'll go through... To Isaiah 53.6. Now, this is a passage that if you truly are reading your scripture regularly, you would almost think it was from the New Testament. So we'll read Isaiah 52.13 to Isaiah 53.6, and then I'm going to jump over to verses 11, uh, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 53. So 52 beginning in verse 13 should be a very familiar passage to you. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astoned at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see." And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that, would, that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hide, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Now verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So you see, there is this blending in the gospel. Who is this Messiah, the Son of the living God? He is the triumphant, all-conquering sovereign, the Son of Man, who condescended to be the suffering servant and have laid upon him all the punishment and the effects of our sins that he might deliver us from all of them. If you notice in Luke 9 and verse 22, you see a phrase that seems to bring all of Isaiah 53 together, and that is the phrase, suffering many things. The word to suffer has a root that means to bear or to endure. And as we just read, surely our sins he bore and he endured. And the many things that he bore is the totality of human guilt on the cross. Now there's another word that I would like you to notice that Jesus said in Luke 9:22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now that word must is an essential part of our confession of faith. Must expresses divine necessity. That is, Jesus Christ suffered, was rejected, experienced a violent death and a bodily resurrection. Why? Because God predestined these things to happen. It was God's intention from all eternity to provide salvation through a suffering Savior. So you see in Luke, Jesus saying again, the Son of Man must suffer and die. I must go to Jerusalem. It is necessary that I do this and I do that. And in each of these incidences, Jesus is saying that my death on the cross was something God planned before time began, and I voluntarily submitted myself to God's plan. In Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, we see the significance of that word must spelled out to us in detail. It says, For truly in this city that were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever my God's hand and my purpose predestined to occur, must occur. So when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer and be killed and be raised again, he is saying, I am voluntarily submitting myself to the eternal plan of God. No one is forcing me to do this. I'm not going to suffer and be rejected and die in Jerusalem because I'm a weak man. I'm going to do it because I am in submission to my Father's will. Remember what Jesus said in John 10. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't because he couldn't help it. It wasn't because he had no power to stop it. It was because of the joy, he says, that was set before him, that he endured the cross, not despising the shame. The joy of seeing seeing his people saved. The joy of obeying God and glorifying him by his obedience for his death was planned from all eternity by Christ himself of his own free will because he loved us. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB, that stands for Post Mailbox, number 402-1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408 866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. God bless.